This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm Josh, uh, the executive director at 10 a.m. on Sunday. This is like church. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, I know there's Aaron. Hey. Um, Salam alaikum, brother. <laughs> So um, there's, I think there'll be a little bit of continuity between our, our presentations. Um, I'm going to do some theory stuff, uh, talk kind of about some critical theory aspects of things uh, very generally. Um, and then there'll be, and running through it, I think will be a thread about the relationship of Christianity to the religious right and what it means to not just push against that reactively, but to think uh, in constructive terms about the relationship of religious practice in general to to socialist struggle, and so that's largely what I'm going to focus on. Um, I will say, too, that in the interest of time, since we're going to do like 10 minutes and then we really want to have dialogue with all of you as well, um, there's, uh, I'm not really going to talk about Marx, but Marx is very much behind what I'm saying, although Marx comes up, but but uh, I'd be really interested in having a conversation about Marx and religion as well. But my talk will basically make two points. The first is a pragmatic and an even instrumentalist one uh, about political power. Uh, the socialist struggle, that point being that the socialist struggle needs the social and ethical power of religious communities and forging a relationship of solidarity between religious practice and socialist struggle is what we need, uh, certainly not antagonism or even neutrality. Um, if the left continues to be alienated from religious communities, then its social and ethical power, the social and ethical power of Christian practice, will continue to be harnessed to conservative and reactionary politics. And I want to say, too, that there's an important point to be made here, which maybe can come out in our discussion about the, uh, about the relationship of religion to reactionary socialism. So what Marx, Marx and Engels call reactionary socialism and the Communist Manifesto, which I think is an important thing, particularly for Christian socialists to struggle with and to think through what that is. The second point, which is perhaps more controversial, is that a materialist account of capitalism is incomplete that doesn't account for the religious form of capitalism. Uh, Thinking through that aspect of capitalism may provide us with an important path for overcoming it, which wasn't available uh, to struggles in the past. So I'll unpack these points. The first one, religion and political power. It's time to be done with the Marxist canard that there's a fundamental contradiction between religion and materialist analysis. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, the problems ought to be obvious here, uh, especially in the US, where churches have wielded far more organized social power uh, than organized socialists really ever have in the U.S. 
And what is more, where socialists have succeeded in the U.S., they have done so specifically because they've been able to forge solidarity with religious practice. The civil rights movement is an obvious example, but it's something that Eugene Debs, Saul Alinsky, and Jay McAlevey today are very aware of. McAlevey points out that, in fact, the, the Bessemer Union drive was in large measure, un, was in part undermined because of the lack of solidarity of the support of the religious community there. Uh, but there's a deeper problem with the traditional Marxist hostility to religion. On the one hand, it's based in a 19th century view of religion as idealist in a way that uh, scholars of religion today wouldn't accept quite the same way. Most theories of religion emphasize it as a material practice, actually practice. But on the other hand, this hostility makes the bourgeois form of religion or mistakes the bourgeois form of religion for its essence. And this is a particularly important point that I want to highlight. Of course, bourgeois religion is a mystification of capitalist society. There's no question about that. It's just that that's because of how successful the bourgeoisie has been at binding religion to capitalism. Mm -hmm. That binding meant, at least in part, cordoning religion off from matters of material production in ways that it had never seen before in human history, and remaking it into a matter of private belief and morality which is only socially meaningful in civil society. So any truly revolutionary politics can't simply accept this bourgeois gelding of religion, but will seek to unleash the revolutionary potential of a religious practice. So we need to focus on what a devoted practice of religious life, which does not serve capital, would be, and how that way of life can embellish the struggle to overcome the contradictions of capitalist society. So again, here I just want to flag the, the issue of reactionary socialism uh, too, because I think there's some things, some important. There's there is a, a fundamental distinction between what I'm talking about as Christian socialism and like a reactionary anti-capitalism, uh, which which arises, but also a certain kind of reactionary socialism, and I think we need to think through what that is. One important implication of what I'm saying here is that a secular or atheistic left isn't actually operating with a demystified materialist view of religion. Uh, it, it, it actually continues to participate in the bourgeois form of religion. It, it too holds a certain set of religious beliefs or beliefs about religion that it takes to be distinct from real politics, the real political struggle. That's entirely consistent with the bourgeois idea of religious practice, and in fact, to the degree that it, that it uh, continues within it, it actually participates in the reproduction of capitalist society and harbors, in its own form, uh, a reactionary kernel. So if you're familiar with Zizek, I'm, what I'm saying is like the exact opposite of what Zizek says, which is that there's like this liberative kernel within Christianity that needs to be reproduced apart from its form, I'm saying, like, no, the kernel actually here in, in under capitalist society is the reactionary part of it. It's the part that's concealed. There's, there's actually something liberative in religious practice, but we have to think through what that is. So the last thing I'll say on this point about power is that religious communities have ways of organizing themselves and building social relations, which the left simply doesn't have. It has ways of religion has ways of deepening rather than compromising relationships through intense conflict. 
uh, ways of transforming lives and forming patterns of living, patterns of inducting children and new members into the practices of that community that the left does not have, as a, you know, in general. That's because the left needs a form of social formation that outstrips bourgeois society. But bourgeois society is all it has. Without that, Marxists are particularly susceptible. Note this point, because I think this is particularly true. Marxists are particularly susceptible to having their most revolutionary aspirations reformed. And I mean that in, a, in the sense of like reformation as opposed to revolutionary. Like their most revolutionary aspirations become reformed or become a form of reformism behind their backs in a sense, and become a form of reproducing capitalism and bourgeois domestication. There's something in religious practice that actually exceeds the constraints of capitalism. <coughs> Second point, uh, capitalism is religion. Uh, note that I'm making a very strong claim here. I don't mean that capitalism is a parody of true religion, some sort of distortion of, of humanity's natural religious impulse. I mean quite literally that capitalism is very successful at religio. And I mean that like in a verbal, in, in the verb sense. Like it is very good at doing religion or binding people together. And, and it does, and it's, its success at doing so in capitalist society actually depends upon a notion of religion that conceals that from us. Uh, it, it hides that reality. And this is just an application of a commodity fetish. And Marx. So just as Marx insists that we grasp capitalist social relations by recognizing their disappearance in material relations, capitalism does its religious work through its non-religious appearing. So capitalism is what Marx calls uh, the bourgeois cosmos. He actually says that Britain or England is, is the demiurge of the bourgeois cosmos. And if you're familiar with John Milbank, you should appreciate that. It's a social totality, uh, which orders time and space, and as such has its own ritual and liturgical forms. It's moral imperatives, dogmas, and creeds, and it even has a clergy, I would say. It's always forming and reforming lives from birth to death into the religio of capitalism. And we miss the vital insight here if we draw two conclusions from this. The first wrong conclusion is that secularism is the problem. Okay, A lot of Christian theology is premised on this idea, and a great deal of Christian socialism views it this way. These people are not to be trusted. Uh, they are eager to remove the speck of atheism, atheistic materialism from your eye before they have recognized the law of capitalism in their own they, are, they seem to genuinely believe that their religious practice is not already captured by capitalism. And that's why you can't trust what they have to say about it, because they imagine this false place that's outside of it from which they can leverage something. I do think that religious practice is in excess of capitalism, but that's a very different thing. We can talk about maybe what that is. Second problem, socialism must be secular. Now, this position maybe a little more controversial, but the point that I'm making here is that this position actually unwittingly reproduces the fetish form of capitalism's religious character, which means that behind its back, it's reformed as reactionary. This is what left, leftist, thanks. This is what leftist sectarianism is. Actually, 
There, there's a speculative identity between tankies and Mennonites, let me say, right? Um, and why we should plot Alistair McIntyre's turn from Trotsky to tradition alongside Christopher Hitchens' preoccupation with atheism and Islamofascism along the exact same reactionary trajectory. What the first one fails to recognize as the first position, fails to recognize uh, as capitalist in its religion, the second fails to recognize as religious in its politics. And so uh, this is part of what Terry Eagleton means when he points out that uh, being a successful atheist is far more complicated matter than most sanctimonious atheists seem to realize. Uh, he means that atheists are usually rejecting something that Christians also reject, but I'm making a stronger point, which is that capitalism is the god of the bourgeois cosmos. We are all compelled to worship this god, offer our sacrifices to it, atone for our sins against it, order our time, organize our space, consecrate our children, conform to all aspects of our lives from birth to reproduction to health to death according to its service, and we do this regardless of what our particular beliefs about something so-called religious actually mean or do. And this is something that religious people have to face squarely. So in capitalist society, religious people aren't doing what they think they're doing. By the same token, what passes for atheism, agnosticism, non-religiosity still participates in capitalist religious form. At least one consequence of this is that, and I'll bring this to a close right now, um, it's the main point I want to make, one consequence of this is that Christians who recognize that they're, well, first of all, we put it like this, Christians who recognize that capitalism is, who would call capitalism idolatrous, for that, who would recognize this point, and then conclude <coughs> from that that their devotion demands some sort of socialist <coughs> politics, which I imagine there are many of you here, uh, have something important to learn about their religious practice from participation in socialist struggle. It means that like socialists who, are, who, have, who don't give a shit about religious practice have something to teach people who do care a great deal about it, about what it means for them to recuperate the non-idolatrous character of their own religious practice. But conversely, and this may be a hard word to hear for some, those in the socialist struggle have something to learn from religious practice, ironically, about how to free their revolutionary agenda from the practice of capitalist religion and by forging the social practices of the socialist of what a socialist cosmos as opposed to a bourgeois cosmos might look like and that's very different let me say than just and conclude on this point it's very different than simply the formation of a revolutionary consciousness all right so that's that's all i have to say Hi, everyone. First, I'll say it's really good to see Josh and Obrey. Uh, especially, Josh, you've been laboring over this Institute for Christian Socialism for like four years. This is the first time I've actually seen him in the flesh. So this is really cool for me. Um, and I'm starting a bit late, too. Um, I have some um, not terribly well-constructed comments about uh, one particular form of right-wing Christianity that I think it's important to engage with. And I chose this because uh, it just so happens I come from a white evangelical community. It's my past, um, and it's unfortunately in certain ways still with me, right? Still wrestling with it, 
And I thought I'd begin to talk a bit about that form of reactionary Christianity, um, both to, to kind of isolate what it is, the force that it is in politics today, and then just to hopefully generate some conversation around some sticky questions about what potential there might be for trying to crush it as a political force, but also organize those who fall outside the bounds of very reactionary white evangelicalism. These are things I don't have good answers to myself, uh, hence why I bring it up here. So a, a couple things first, just to, to, to comment about white evangelicalism. I think Obrey will have many more good things to say in excess of this, but uh, a couple of things. Um, since Trump's election, uh, analysts, pundits, and a uh, good many well-intentioned Christians have continually stumbled over white evangelicals' ability to move in lockstep with Trump every time he lurches further towards authoritarianism. That's only gotten worse in the last uh, two years. This bafflement is usually caused by a common assumption that insofar as white evangelicals embrace far-right far politics, they are somehow contradicting the values of their faith. So Christianity enjoins them to love their neighbor, care for the poor, seek peace, and so on, but they're violating this, they're contradicting it. So the strategies for combating Trumpism become shaming, fact-checking, and perhaps most prevalently, the charge of hypocrisy. And these strategies are amazingly still pulled out in 2022, even as Trumpism and its white evangelical base are more committed and more consolidated. In fact, a Pew Research study I just found out this morning found that Trump supporters who did not identify as evangelical in 2016 are now more likely to identify as such this year. That's wild to me, but I understand it because I came from it. <laughs> Uh, the attempt to resolve the contradictions of white evangelicalism, to hold a mirror to them, as it were, and ask them to do better, it really does misunderstand what white evangelicalism is, and it's undergirded also by a very thin notion of how people relate to religious beliefs and theology. First, it fails to understand this deeper history of white evangelicalism and its genesis in reactionary and racist politics. And second, it assumes that people develop religious beliefs in some kind of unmediated way. In other words, that there is some set of beliefs that one can adhere to without those beliefs being mediated by politics, culture, race, and so on. There's, of course, now a flood of literature, Obrey's book being one among many, on the emergence of contemporary evangelicalism, but the election especially helped inaugurate a new wave of scholarship and research into the origins of this evangelical right. Um, so in, in a sense, what's emerged here is this white evangelicalism that we talk about is a fairly recent improvisation on an earlier evangelical faith, one that fuses theology, culture, and politics in a very novel way and in a particularly reactionary direction, especially around issues of race. Most people, perhaps many here, would uh, probably name abortion as its animating concern, and certainly it's been relentlessly involved in pro-life causes. But commentators often season abortion as the issue that awakened evangelicals, but far from it. In fact, Catholic pro-lifers of the nascent new right had a very hard time getting evangelicals to share their staunch opposition to abortion at first. Rather, what galvanized white evangelicals into political action was race especially federal intervention in segregated schools. So it's born in reaction to issues of race very much, as well as other issues, and it generates a politics around grievance, and especially illegitimate government power wielded on behalf of usurpers and against some white majority. The next thing I want to say uh, is, and this is an important point, I think, just to, to, to hammer in so we know where we're going politically, is that white evangelicalism is now a significant force in the consolidation of authoritarian and even neo-fascist current in the US. Exhibit A, for me in fact, is the Christian history textbooks that I grew up with as a homeschooler, believe it or not. So in a sense, I saw this coming, not really, because I was still formed in it, but I saw it coming in these textbooks 20 years ago. You'd find things in these books, uh, claims like slavery was some kind of unfortunate happenstance in America's history. 
Uh, that evolution was some kind of conspiracy of secularists to glorify our animal <coughs> lusts and instincts. But beyond that, uh, the more serious claims were that God gave clear prescriptions that are found in the Bible about exactly how government should rule. And governments that don't rule in accordance with the book of law are not only misguided, but are actually illegitimate. And of course, the founders guiding ideas about American government just happened to perfectly coincide with biblical law, right? So a Christian citizenry is required, right, to support this biblical polity. It's necessary. And so what comes out of this, and this is not completely um, exclusive to white evangelicals, but there's a very strong dependence on ideas of the country being inhabited primarily by Christians, ruled by Christians, reflecting Christian values. Um, I, I, over the last few decades, white evangelicals have often ingeniously played off this basic idea, right? Uh, Lauren Kirby, in her book, Saving History, talks about how white evangelicals can identify with many narratives at the same time around the idea of being a founder, an exile, a victim, and a savior. I would say, depending on the balance of political forces at the moment, white evangelicals will lead more heavily into one of these, right? Founders, exile, victim, and savior. But what undergirds these roles is uh, this basic idea. The country is, and in some sense, was originally theirs. And that insidious forces from within and below have usurped their rightful role. And that their role is to retake the country and purify it. In other words, this is important, I think, something that took me 60 years to realize as someone who was completely thrown out of sorts with, with the rise of Trump and my parents and my communities lurched towards Trump, is illiberalism lies at the very heart of white evangelicalism. There's no denying that, I don't think. But this is often disavowed by white evangelicals themselves. Here, I think it's useful to recall the work of the Frankfurt School, especially the notion developed by Adorno and others of the authoritarian personality that there are liberal democracies, many who don't actually accept those liberal values. They are frequently opposed to them, but without necessarily revealing or being willing to reveal that fact. Um, there are those who Adorno says, quote, in the name of upholding traditional American values and defending them against more or less fictitious dangers are actually consciously aiming at their abolition. I think this is one of the reasons uh, that white evangelicals' framing of the political stakes, strangely enough, looks very similar to this new cadre of reactionary Catholics, who you may know by the term post-liberal. Um, Saurabh Amari, Patrick Deneen, Chad Pagnall. Um, and I say it's somewhat strange because, as I'm sure you know, evangelicals are customarily very hostile to the Catholic faith. But as has been the case since the early 90s, it's precisely around socially conservative, anti-liberal, and anti-democratic political causes that the two have been able to find common ground and remarkable similarity of vision. I think it's here that this, this would be a longer conversation, but this really does harken back to the fact that I, evangelicalism arose within a fusionist moment, right? This idea that conservatism was this, this fusion of free markets politics and socially conservative politics. And that was a somewhat temporary pact, I think, in the longer stretch of conservatism, right? That this was actually a tactical pact, and it's actually latent and underneath much of conservatism is a seed of authoritarianism, of illiberalism, which can and will be activated in certain political moments. I think we're seeing this with white evangelicalism and its alliance and fusion with other reactionary anti-liberal religious movements too. Um, one last thing, I'll, I'll make a point that's very tentative, but I think it's important. Um, there's a neglected aspect, I think, when it comes to understanding white evangelicalism, and that is class. Um, even in some of the better, more recent literature, for instance, that of Kristen Cobes de Mez, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, absolutely recommend it. It's a great read. Um, if you know that book, you'll understand me. <laughs> uh, as well as sociologists like Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead. Uh, these authors are responsible for helping to mainstream this term Christian nationalism, which you'll see everywhere now on CNN and MSNBC. And, um, but there is little attention in these books paid to class per se. 
Now, I don't have an airtight case for this yet, and in fact, this is an area I think that would be ripe for more research. But it seems to me you can't understand the persistence of white evangelical support for Trump without understanding that the white evangelical base we're talking about hails disproportionately from a certain strata, which is higher income, homeowning, ex-urban, sometimes suburban, and especially small and family-owned business. As we now know, this strata, and not the rage of some deindustrialized Rust Belt, right, really carried Trump, and it is now what continues to buoy authoritarianism and fascism in the U.S. So um, I think this, this element of class has to be paid further attention to because it helps us start to kind of pull apart who exactly are the people in what we call this white evangelical movement, right? Is there any sense in which, is, is it totally lost as a, as a block of political power? Are they lost to right-wing authoritarianism? Is there a possibility of redeeming or organizing with people that are perhaps avowedly in the evangelical churches? It seems to clear, clear to me that white evangelicalism as a political block needs to be crushed. There's no question about that. But there are important questions, I think, for organizers and activists about the potential for peeling white evangelicals or evangelicals of some sort away from those communities, as well as the possibilities for organizing evangelicals who fall outside the bounds of this highly reactionary um, white evangelicalism. I do think it's important for the left, as Josh has started to gesture towards, not only to get beyond notions of religion as inherently reactionary, but also to think very hard about the untapped potential and the limits of coalitions that include evangelicals and other religious folks, especially coalitions struggling for material and public goods. Now, this obviously puts us a harder question, too, about how do you um, organize and build coalitions with those whose um, very religious beliefs might lead them to oppose the way you live, right? If they're intolerant um, about issues of gender and race and things like that, can you organize with them? Um, do you focus on material goods over those things? Is that impossible to do as leftists, right? These are really hard questions, but ones that I don't very often find explored. Um, in the conclusion of Adorno's lecture, um, which was called The Aspects of the New Right Populism, he describes this interesting split in the consciousness of certain interviewees in the authoritarian personality studies, where they had repressive and reactionary thoughts about some things, thank you, largely social issues, but when you brought up issues of clear, transparent material interests, they suddenly become very rational, right? Um, this is an interesting insight because, again, I think there are huge overlaps between the way some evangelicals think about politics and authority um, and the kinds of people Adorno was studying, right? And he, he actually said this was the most important and ripe area for further study and thought by leftists of his time, was what to do with that split in consciousness among those who would never call themselves leftists, right, but are potentially organizable. Um, so I think with that, I will conclude my remarks, and I'm sure many questions may come up later, but that's all for now. Oh, good morning. I think it's very uh, ironic that we are here at the, at the church hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> talk about this. First, let me say, I um, just got over a uh, monster flu. <coughs> couple weeks ago, but I still have, uh, I developed a, um, an ear and in, in, uh, sinus infection as a result, so my speech might be, uh, well, it's already started being halting, um, and I don't know that I'll be able to present myself in the, uh, <coughs> the brilliance and eloquence <laughs> for which I am known. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to make, begin with an assertion, and that is that religion is the foremost terrain of political contestation in America today. Um, and that is overlooked and ignored at our risk by so many on the left, uh, which is why the right is winning. 
Um, uh, I was in central Georgia a couple months ago. Um, uh, my wife to do some, she's doing some research for an article. And um, everywhere I saw signs essentially were saying that uh, Democrats, progressives, anyone on the left, um, that uh, we're godless, we you know, molest children, I mean, all, all, all of that. But essentially, that is, is, no, they didn't say we molest children, but I'm, I'm being facetious. But, um, but essentially, that is because we've allowed, we have allowed those on the right to define us uh, and, and uh, to define us as uh, unspiritual, irreligious, immoral, when um, our positions are and our, our policy initiatives are more uh, ethically based and more um, biblically based, if you will, than, uh, than what we see on the right and, and certainly in capitalism. Um, you know, capitalism is uh, the antithesis of the biblical witness in so many ways, uh, but we do not articulate that. So um, I, I'd just like to share a couple observations. I've written a book on my most recent book is Christians Against Christianity. It's, it's uh, an indictment of right-wing evangelicals, and I do whoop some ass in it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to talk about that right now. Um, but you know, we 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 see that as the foremost uh, terrain of political contestation today. If anyone has any question, it's you know, look at Trump. Look who got Trump elected, and um, NRA uh, their support for the for for, um, uh, for abortion their opposition to immigration, uh, their opposition, there's a strong opposition, as we know, to unions. Um, and that's, that has to do with, um, with, with religions, and we ignore that um, and uh, refuse to, uh, to confront that at, at our own risk. Um, first, I'd like to say, though, that there's an ethical affinity between foundational biblical ethics, um, particularly exemplified in, uh, in the gospel. Um, Four Gospels of Jesus Christ, and um, its affinity between foundational biblical ethics and socialist ethos, and it, they're pretty pretty basic. First, uh, both are concerned about the common good. Um, that's there's so much ignorance about the biblical witness, but it's about the common good. Um, it's um, and in fact, you look at it in, ter in, in cultural and anthropological terms, um, that that has been the focus of most of humanity uh, since we became humanity. Both are concerned for the common good and both build upon, in my opinion, on the moral economy of the, the peasant as articulated by James C. Scott in his book of that name. Um, and because there, there are two prongs to it. First is that both are concerned with the right of subsistence. In other words, everyone, you recognize that everyone has a right to basic subsistence, to the to the basic decent things of life, um, as they are um, in, in relation to the rest of the society that they, they are in, and they both um, have a sense of general reciprocity. Socialist ethics uh, ethos has a sense of general reciprocity in that um, we look out for one another in society because we know that we will be looked out for. In society, and you know, we've seen that in different different uh, forms in uh, throughout uh, history. But that's that really comes from the uh, moral economy, the peasantry. 
And we see this reflected in, um, in Christianity, which when we talk about religion in America, we're basically, as, as political contestation, that's what we're basically talking about. Um, we, <coughs> we see this reflected um, in, 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 in uh, Jesus' identification of an Old Testament uh, imperative, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and he says that this is the greatest of all social commandments. Um, you know, there's this the, the uh, vertical commandment, love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he says on the horizontal level, on the social level, the greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself, which has extraordinary, um, extraordinarily profound implications. It's, a, it's really essentially about egalitarian justice, wanting for your neighbor the same rights and freedoms and, and resources, um, good things in life, um, uh, freedom from oppression on down the line as one wants for oneself. Um, you know, that's like such a high ideal and, and that's reflected in, in, in every religious tradition um, one way or, or another. But it goes much deeper than that. Um, um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about some things that are that are hidden, hidden and kept uh, and not stressed at all for a number of reasons, most many of which we can figure out from common sense. But um, one thing that's not known is that the basic, most foundational ethic of the biblical witness, I'm talking about Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, New Testament too, most basic ethic is social justice. The most basic, let me explain, why that is. It's not just me saying that. It's not just me being uh, anachronistic. But um, the most important and most often cited ethical concept in the biblical witness is Hebrew term mishpat, justice. Uh, justice or um, it's translated as judgment also meaning discerning between um, uh, justice and injustice, right and wrong. Uh, over 400 times it occurs in every division of the Bible, mishpat, justice, the concept of justice, uh, meaning that everyone has uh, a right to, to have their, what is due to them as, as a human being, um, made in the image of God in biblical terms. Um, the second most often cited ethical term is a Hebrew word, tzedakah. Uh, uh, in various forms, which is translated wrongly as righteousness um, often, and because it's wrong because it gives a connotation of, of personal piety. But because there is no sense of individuality in the Hebrew Bible, there's no term for individual at all. It's always ha'am, the people, or ha'ami, my people. Um, so it's not about, person, uh, uh, about personal piety. It is about um, doing right in society, doing right by others. And so when you put the terms, and then what's so interesting is that Mishpat and Sadaqah, these two terms that show up more than any others in the, in the, in the Bible, um, j justice and, and doing right in society, which means really doing justice in society, they also are the most often paired terms in the, in the biblical witness. More than any others, you put them together, justice, and doing justice in society, what do you have? Social justice. It's basic, duh. But, you know, <laughs> why, do we not, why do we not hear that? Well, there's a, there are a lot of reasons for it. But it really goes way back to like the 4th century when Emperor Constantine 
declared himself the 13th apostle appointed by God, which meant that no one could question him. <coughs> and under his, under his ages, um, Christianity that started as the, uh, as the faith of the oppressed uh, became the religion of the oppressor. And what one, how one lived, how one served, um, became less important um, than, than what one believed because he sponsored all these conferences and councils which decided what was orthodox. Um, um, and they did it by hand and voice vote. Um, I'll leave that alone. Um, but so many things that Christians believe come, uh, come out of that kind of setting and have nothing to do with, cannot be found um, in the Bible. For instance, belief in the Holy Trinity. There's no there's nothing in the Bible about Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are one except a mistranslation of uh, 1 John 7 in the uh, early King James Bible. So, got a lot of, a lot of stuff we got to deal here. So, um, deal with. But um, I think that's so very important for us to know because if, if, if we are become aware of these things, we become aware that the first sermon that we're told, the first sermon that Jesus preached um, in Luke 4 is the the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, not uh, because he's anointed me to jump and shout and bump my head on the ceiling, vomit and fall on the floor, but the Spirit of the Lord, that's supposed to be funny, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me, which anointed means made me Messiah, to bring good news to the poor. And what's good news to the poor? Structural justice. It's not like the prosperity anti-gospel where some get a bigger you know, piece of the pie. It, it's, it's and others, you know, star. It means that um, the uh, it, it means structural change that the relationships, laws, the institutions, whatever that make people poor and keep them poor, that they will be changed so that so that um, that's good news for um, for for the poor. But these are those who have weaponized Christianity, and particularly the fools we see today. They they don't know these they don't know these things and don't want to know these things and and um, and they're kept from from uh, from the masses. You're at 10. Hmm? You're at 10. Okay. Um, she told me I, I just have. I, I, I just have 25 more minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, in, 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 by, by saying, and we'll have time for uh, for conversation. But um, if we are to free the masses, first off, you know, we're in a war for hearts and minds, right? Um, and if we're to free the masses from their Babylonian captivity to the false and the toxic beliefs foisted upon them by weaponized uh, Christianity, then we must seek to speak to them in terms, in frames of references that they uh, that are intelligible to them. Um, we can't talk past them, and so part of that means that we must um, strategically. I'm not talking about from a faith perspective, but from a strategic perspective, we must become familiar with with um, with their frame of reference, just some of the basic stuff that we're, you know, we're trying to talk about today. And that's what we, at the Institute for Christian Socialism, endeavor to do, to, to present you know, resources to be used um, for, for those of you who are uh, struggling on so many, other, uh, so many other, other fronts. None of us can do, can do and know all this um, 
at the same time, so we have to support um, one another. Um, we are engaged, so religion being the foremost form of uh, uh, terrain of political contestation means that we're involved, in a, we must be involved in a counter-hegemonic uh, struggle against the religious, uh, uh, the, the hegemony of, of toxic Christianity um, that's killing our people. That also means that um, it's important for us, even as we're disrespected, to try to develop some sense of respect for what, for this folks, this folks frame of reference, because, um, as I say in my book, you know, many of them are, you know, they're really wrong. They're like, you know, ass backward. But so many are sincerely wrong. Uh, they think that this is really uh, the truth. For instance, there are, you know, black, um, there are black folks who are. Right-wing evangelicals, um, and they—I mean, I—I—I I, I, I had one in my family um, because they thought that was the—you know—that was correct. They didn't know any better until, you know, we uh, we helped them see that. So I want to end there, and hopefully, we'll have some real discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode. Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.